Well, we live in a world, I think, where we, we love to hate um, rich people that have gone wrong. I think that's always been true to an extent, um, but maybe today with, with media and newspapers and social media and all, all the other stuff, it's quite easy to get into sort of a, a crowd um, condemnation of certain members of, of, the, of the rich elite around us. Uh, even in the last week or so, there's been at least three um, rich people that um, I think the media have loved to hate. Um, you might want to guess who you think I'm going to say now for the free, so you can work it out. Uh, the first one, um, Prince Andrew. Um, everyone's favourite prince, he, um, he's been um, linked with um, what's went on with, um, I've forgotten the name of the guy now, Epstein, that's right, Epstein, um, and um, the horrendous treatment and manipulation of young women um, for sex, because um, we don't know for certain what Andrew was involved in, but he's been roundly condemned for that, um, and of course he's very rich. Then there's Roman, Ib Roman Ibrath. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. Roman, let's call him Roman. <laughs> Roman, the Russian guy that owns Chelsea. Um, of course, he's someone who else is very wealthy, but of course, he's quite closely tied and linked with Putin, who is the number one enemy of the world today. So again, he's been under a lot of criticism in the media recently, hasn't he? And then, of course, there's um, another person with a difficult name who's not Russian, but Peter Hevelthwaite. Do you know who Peter Hevelthwaite is? Chief, yeah, chief executive of P&O. And of course, only a few weeks ago, they, they suddenly sacked 800 of their seamen in order to employ um, cheaper international workers. And um, apparently, a, a panel of um, MSPs, which is Scottish MPs, um, basically described him as the most hated man in Britain. We love to hate rich people that have done wrong things. I suppose it's not surprising, there's a sense of, you know, they seem to have all that wealth, all that prosperity, they seem to have good lives, and yet they've done horrible things. It seems unjust. I guess there may be also a sense of jealousy. Actually, we'd quite like to have the wealth that they have. But throughout history, I think, rich people particularly, those in the public eye, have been loved to be hated or condemned by the crowds. And yet, of course, these are individual people with real emotions and real connections like you and me. On Tuesday was the um, Thanksgiving service, a memorial service for Prince Philip, the Prince Duke of Edinburgh, and the, the, the husband of the Queen. And controversially, the Queen asked Prince Andrew to be the one to walk her down the aisle for that service in Westminster Abbey. And it was a controversial decision. Some people condemned it because of what Prince Andrew has been linked with. Um, other people said, well, shouldn't we understand this? After all, here is a mother with her son. Um, she wants to show loyalty to him. She wants to offer forgiveness for what he's done wrong. And this is a moment for the family of great emotion, of great sadness as they mourn the loss of his father and her wife. Yes, these rich people have done some of them horrendous things. It's right to condemn those things. But they are real people like you and me. They have needs. And in some ways, maybe they're as lost as other people as well. But what would Jesus' attitude be to these people? 
Well, in Luke's Gospel, um, Luke in particular is a story, um, tells Jesus' story in a way that emphasizes a lot of Jesus' teaching on wealth and riches. It's, it's strange in a way because, or maybe it's not strange, but um, Luke is writing, he says at the start, to a guy called Theophilus, and Theophilus was probably a rich Roman who could afford to employ Luke to basically do the research and, and write the book of Luke's Gospel. So he's writing, firstly, to rich people, rich Romans. And yet he includes more of what Jesus says about rich people and about wealth than the other Gospels do. And often Jesus is quite condemning. So, for example, he says in Luke 6, 24, um, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, called the Sermon on the Plain, includes woes as well as blessings. And Jesus says this, But woe to you who are rich! For you have already received your comfort. That's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Um, and in some of the parables that are in Luke's gospel, but not in the others, there's, there's the parable of the rich fool. Um, basically, this happens when Jesus, um, someone comes and approaches Jesus. He's having an argument with his brother about um, an inheritance, something that would never happen these days. Um, and he says, look, Jesus, tell, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to get involved in that, but let me warn you about wanting to have riches. There was this man who was, um, owned a farm. He was very rich and wealthy. He had a bumper crop one year. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll put all my crops into a bigger barn. Then I can sort of live life easy and happy and enjoy things to go forward. And Jesus says, God said to him that night, you fool. Tonight you're going to die. Who's going to get your wealth then? bit of a challenge, isn't it? And Jesus says that anyone who is not rich towards God, but hangs on to stuff for themselves, this is the way God will treat you. And then perhaps even more challenging parable is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar that um, stayed at the rich man's gate. He had a horrendous life. His sores were licked by dogs. And yet a rich man was living in his wealth and prosperity, sort of living it up and enjoying it. Uh, and Jesus says in the parable that, that both of them died. And Lazarus, the guy, the, the pauper at the gate, is the one that's taken up to heaven and, and sits with Abraham and, and enjoys the blessings of heaven. But the rich man is in hell, in torments. And the rich man cries out to Abraham, Abraham, can't you just give me some comfort in this torment? And Abraham responds in parable that Jesus tells and says you had your good times in your life and Lazarus suffered now things are the other way around, it can't be changed again a deep challenge to those who are wealthy not to just gather things for themselves without thinking of others or thinking of God's purposes and then in the chapter before our chapter in Luke chapter 18 um, Jesus is approached, and this story is also in the other Gospels, he's approached by a rich young ruler. And this man comes to Jesus, and he asks the right question. He says, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, if more young people came to our church and said, how can I get eternal life? Um, people don't really think about these things. But this man does that, and Jesus basically says to him, after a bit of a conversation, he says, one thing you need to do, go and sell everything you have, Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says the man was very sad 
because he was very wealthy. And he walked away. And Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it's an extreme statement because they probably hadn't seen elephants. And camels were the biggest animals they could think of. And the eye of a needle is one of the smallest holes they could think of. Jesus was saying it's impossible. Jesus is saying, look, if, 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 your, if your life is about accumulating rich, thing, rich stuff, accumulating possessions, if your life and priorities is about having more and more things without thinking about God, without thinking about his purposes, if money is more important to you than God's, then you can't be part of the kingdom of heaven. You'll miss out on eternal life. Jesus has very challenging words to say to the rich. And yet, Jesus, and maybe particularly in Luke's Gospel, is also very clear that he's come to save the lost. And particularly tax collectors. Now, in the Gospels, um, the tax collectors, we need to understand in those days, uh, in that context, were particularly hated people. It's not like people that work for HMRC today. If you work for HMRC, that, that's fine. You know, we love you. Um, but, but tax collectors in those days, um, in the Jewish context, they were working for the Romans. So, so the Romans were the occupying force for Judah. They were oppressing people. They were, they were threatening people. They were beating people up if they didn't go along with what the Romans said. The Jews longed to have their own kingdom to be independents. But the Romans employed people from the Jews to collect the taxes for them. And, and, and you might say, well, why did the people give them the taxes? Well, if you, did, if you refused to give your taxes to the tax collector, then before you knew it, know it, some Roman soldiers would be knocking on your door and would be very persuasive. And the tax collectors were rewarded financially very well for their role in collecting money for the Romans. So you can see that the locals, the Jewish people, really hated the tax collectors. They were seen as betraying their own people, betraying God's cause, and doing it just to get rich quick. Here were rich people that they hated. And yet Jesus, again and again we're told, hung out with tax collectors. In Luke chapter 5, um, we're told that he calls Levi. In other Gospels, Levi's called Matthew. Matthew or Levi was a tax collector. And yet Jesus calls him to be one of his disciples, one of his followers. And when Jesus calls Levi, Levi gets all his mates together, including tax collectors and other dodgy, sinning people. Um, and they have a big party, and they, they all get to meet Jesus. Uh, and Jesus goes to the party and hangs out with these people. Uh, and the Pharisees, the sort of religious people that were knew how to live good lives and were respected for living good lives and, and knew what the Bible said and taught what the Bible said, they came along and said to Jesus, wait a minute, Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people, these sinners and tax collectors? Aren't you sort of showing, saying that they're, they're okay? And Jesus says to them, it's not, the, um, it's not the well that need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come for people like this. I want to help people like this. That story is in most of the, in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
But in Luke's Gospel, there's also the parables of the lost. Luke chapter 15 begins in a very similar way to the situation in chapter 5. Jesus is, has got lots of tax collectors and sinners coming to him. And the people around are saying to, saying to Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're saying to Jesus, how can you hang out with these people? How can you welcome these people? They're so awful. And Jesus tells not one, not two, but three separate parables, all with a similar message. In each parable, something is lost, and then it's found again. And when it's found again, there's great rejoicing. In the first parable, it's a lost sheep. In the second parable, it's a lost coin. And in the third parable, it's the lost son, or the prodigal son, as we know. And the point Jesus is trying to make is, look, look, God's attitude is like the one who has lost something. God longs to look for and bring that thing back, whether it's a sheep or a sheep back into the fold, or a coin back into the purse, or a son back into the family. And when that, that thing that's lost is found, then God rejoices, just like the people in the, in the stories. God celebrates. And so Jesus says, look, there's as much celebration in heaven over one sinner that repents as over lots of people that just carry on doing good stuff. God longs to bring people back to him. To see them transformed and changed. And then in chapter 18, just before our chapter, Jesus tells another parable. In this parable is a Pharisee, you know, the good, uprighteous people, and a tax collector. And they both go into the temple, and the Pharisee sort of stands there and says to God, look how great I am, God. Look how carefully and how well I've behaved. You know, I, I give, give a tithe, that's a tenth of my goods to God and the poor. I, I, I fast twice a week, that's how religious I am. You know, this, is, this, is, this guy sort of shows how good he is, how religious he is, how wonderful he is. And a tax collector comes in, falls on his knees, beats his chest, and says, have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector that goes home right with God, not the Pharisee. So you see in Luke's Gospel, there's these two themes. The rich, in a way, are condemned and challenged about holding on to their riches and, and not being rich towards God. And, and yet the, the tax collectors, the ones that somehow outside and hated by the, the people of the time, are welcomed by Jesus and called back to repentance to him. And those two key themes are big themes in Luke's Gospel. And the reason I've told you since very long telling you about those themes is because when we come to the story of Zacchaeus in chapter 19, we're reaching a climax in the story of Luke's Gospel. Um, in the, in the second half of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is basically heading for Jerusalem. He's telling his disciples, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. And then on the third day, rise again. And his disciples thought, what on earth is he going on about? But it says that Jesus was determined to head for Jerusalem. And so there's this journey to Jerusalem through the Gospel. Uh, and we're coming towards the end of the journey. If you look at later on in chapter 19, we get to the point where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey in a great, um, that moment of Palm Sunday that we celebrate next week. But of course, that's just before he goes and, he's, and dies on the cross and rises again. This is a climactic moment in Luke's gospel. And, and, and the last post, the last place you come to on your journey to Jerusalem in those days was Jericho. It's the last stopover, if you like. And as Jesus comes into Jericho, 
he comes across this guy, Zacchaeus. Now, most of us know Zacchaeus. If you went to Sunday school, you, you probably sang that song, um, Zacchaeus was a very little man. Did some of you sing that? Chris is nodding. Zacchaeus was a very little man, and a very little man was he. And we, we know that he was small. We know that he was short. Um, you might think the whole point of the story is that um, God can save even short people. Well, he can. <laughs> a bit strange, isn't it? But I don't know. He can. <laughs> but actually... The two key things that we're told about Zacchaeus coming in verse 2, if I was open, this is a good time to look at them. Verse 2 of chapter 19, he says, A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So we've heard in Luke all these tax collectors that have come to Jesus. We think, oh, here's someone that Jesus is going to welcome. A chief tax collector. But then he says, and he was wealthy. He was filthy rich. But hasn't Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Do you see at this climactic moment of Jesus' ministry how Luke is pulling these two themes together in, in this, this account of this event that only, it's only recorded in Luke's gospel? What is Jesus going to do with this person? He's a tax collector, but he's a rich person. Can this rich person find eternal life? And so Jesus comes through Jericho. And we're told that because Zacchaeus was um, short, and probably because he was hated by the crowds, he couldn't get to see Jesus. But he wanted to see Jesus. Like everyone else, he'd heard of Jesus' miracles, he'd heard of his preaching. He knew this guy was someone special, someone worth seeing. So he ran ahead of the crowds and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Strange thing for a wealthy man to do. And Jesus came through Jericho and he got to the tree. And he looked up into the tree and he said to Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. Of all the people in Jericho that Jesus chooses to go for a meal with, it's Zacchaeus. Probably the most hated man in Jericho because he was a tax collector and he was rich. And how do the crowds respond? How on earth can you do this, Jesus? How on earth can you choose to go to the house of such a sinner, such a traitor to God's people, someone who's so greedy that he has sent out his countrymen to the Romans? But Jesus says he must go to the house of Zacchaeus. Why must he? Well, I think verse 10 gives the answer. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was hated. Zacchaeus was greedy. Zacchaeus was all out for getting the money for himself. But spiritually, he was lost. Spiritually, he was heading for hell. Spiritually, he was in a hopeless situation. And Jesus had come for people just like him. And so Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is rejoicing. There's a sense that he realizes that Jesus is saying, look, you have a second chance. 
a chance to change your ways to be different, a chance to truly be part of God's people. And Zacchaeus grabs that chance, and, and there's a few things I want to say about how he grabs the chance. First of all, there's a sense in which Jesus, sorry, Zacchaeus repents. Yeah. Jesus' life has been about being greedy, about working for the Romans in order to get rich quick. He's become very rich. He's been very successful. But now he completely switches that around. Now than rather being about getting money, he's about giving money away. Rather than about greed, he's about generosity. And he says to Jesus, look, of all my wealth, I'm going to give half of it away to the poor. And anyone I've cheated, I'm not going to pay them back what the law says, you know, a bit extra. I'm going to give them four times what I owe them. Money's not important to me anymore. What matters is living for God's. I've realized that it's not so much about having possessions as being owned by God's. It's not about having riches on earth, but riches in heaven. That's what I want. That's the way I'm going to live my life now, Jesus. It's a turnaround. It's repentance. But I think also there's a sense in which Zacchaeus believes Jesus says to him and to everyone that was there, he says, look, today um, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Why does he say he's a son of Abraham? Well, it may be he's saying to the people there, look, look, he's, just a, he's, like, he's a Jew like you. He's a, he's a descendant of Abraham like you. You should be rejoicing that he's coming back into the fold. He's coming back to, to live as a person of Abraham. But actually, I think what's happening here is that in the Bible, those that are called sons of Abraham are those that, are called, those that behave like Abraham. And what was Abraham most famous for? Having faith. Believing God. Taking God at his words. And actually, when you go through the Gospels and see when Jesus tells people they've found salvation in some way, he often says it's because of your faith. Zacchaeus has come to believe God's. He's come to believe that Jesus is offering him the chance for forgiveness. He's come to believe that Jesus can give him eternal life. He's come to believe that, that eternal life is worth far more than the wealth he might have in this life. He's come to believe in God's amazing grace. Zacchaeus repents, Zacchaeus believes, and Jesus says Zacchaeus is saved. But notice in verse 9, he says, Today, salvation has come to you. And I think that today is really important. He's not saying, Okay, Zacchaeus, you say you're going to give away all your money. Well, let, let's see if you do that. And, and when you've done that, and when you've paid back people back, and, and when you've shown you're living a better life, then we know that you're right with God. No, Jesus says, Today, Salvation has come to this house. In other words, as soon as Zacchaeus makes the decision to change his life, to trust in God and Jesus, as soon as that happens, he is saved. He is forgiven. He has eternal life. It's salvation by faith, not works. Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. And so as we finish, a couple of questions. First of all, are you someone here who hasn't made the decision yet to be a follower of Jesus? 
Maybe you realise you're a bit like Zacchaeus. Not that you're short, maybe you are short, but... But maybe you're a bit like him, not maybe that you're wealthy so much, but you are greedy. Do you want to be wealthy? Do you think life is all about having as much as you can get? Of having those creature comforts? Wouldn't be surprising if you think that, we're told to think that again and again by adverts and so on. Maybe you think that money is more important than knowing God. That wealth on earth is more important than treasures in heaven. Maybe you begin to realise that God is seeking you. That he's calling you to repent and to trust. To turn your life around and commit yourself to Christ. To take on a life of generosity rather than greed. For many of you here, though, I'm sure you've made that decision in the past already. You do trust in Christ. You, do, you have repented. You do believe. Yes, you've messed up occasionally here and there, but you want to live for God. But actually, are we in danger of falling into the attitude of the critical crowd? Do we just go along with the attitudes of the media and the social media and the societies around us? We look at the rich and wealthy that have gone wrong and we'd like to hate them and to condemn them and challenge them. Do we actually take on Jesus' attitude? Do we want to seek and save the lost? Are we concerned that individuals whose lives have not known God, have not been lived his way, are not so much condemned but brought to repentance, brought to that desire to live for God, to trust in the second chance that Jesus offers them and find forgiveness. Are we as a church longing to welcome more people to come and discover the amazing grace and forgiveness that God offers through Jesus? Or are we having to sit back and just criticise the world around. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of second chances. We thank you that through Jesus you do offer us that chance to turn back to you. Help us as your church, as your people, to have your attitude, to seek and save those who are lost, to welcome those whose lives may have been messed up in the past, may have been way against what you want, but to show them that they can come to be yours, to turn their lives around, and to find salvation today. In your name we pray. Amen.